The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. I'm excited for this episode of Building Elite Sales Teams. We're going to be talking about five pillars necessary for building an elite team, how repeatability and consistency are indicators of a well-functioning team, and how to identify talent that has the right mindset for sales success. Today on Building Elite Sales Teams, we have Kyle Norton with us. Kyle Norton is the SVP of sales at owner.com. He has 15 years in revenue leadership, most recently at Shopify, where he ran sales and customer success for Canada. And before that, he was the VP of sales at League, taking it from zero to $205 million. Kyle, thanks for being with us here today. Appreciate you having me. Looking forward to it. Kyle, in your experience as a longtime sales leader, what are some of the key elements that you found around building an elite sales organization? Yeah, so there's a few pillars that I think I try to build around. Talent, it's first and foremost. The second piece is systems engineering. So the sales tech, your infrastructure, data, business process is the second big pillar. Playbooks is a big one. Playbooks and frameworks, what your reps are actually following to get deals done. Coaching development is another playbook. So the enablement and training you give them. And then culture. I think is the other pillar of that system and those things all working together in a cohesive manner in a way that's optimized for your particular customer market, the stage of your company, because what you do as an early stage startup selling to one market versus late stage selling to someplace totally different, those will all express themselves differently. But those five things working in concert are certainly the ones that I think most about. So when those things are all working in concert, what's happening in your sales organization where you know that you have an elite organization that's firing on all cylinders? I I think the thing that you're really looking for is repeatability. Can you, in a consistent, repeatable manner, find and identify good talent, have them come into your organization and close deals after some period of time that makes sense for your business? And do you have month over month and quarter over quarter consistency in your performance? And so that repeatability is really the sign of your systems working and the business working versus a much more sporadic, lumpy type of performance, which typically means that the system might not be doing a ton, but you've got some great talent, they're making magic happen. So repeatability is really big. And, and specifically within that, something that I argue frequently that may be more controversial is the performance of your top people is not really an indicator of how good you are as a sales leader or how good your system is. It's really the performance of your middle class. Like what is the performance to quota, the month over month attainment of that group of people who are pretty good? They're not performance concerns, but they're they're not your elite superstars. That I think says way more about 
your abilities as a as a builder of revenue systems and, and a teacher of, of the craft because like your superstars are going to be great no matter what. Like you have to be really horrible to make to build an environment where like a true superstar can't succeed. They'll always figure it out. What's that middle class like? So if you're hitting your number, but you only have a couple of people who are really carrying the rest of the team and your quota attainment's really low, then that would be something where the rest of the pieces, the, the systems engineering, the playbooks, the culture, the talent pieces aren't necessarily in place the way you want them to be? Usually. Yeah. I, I think and that's so- the indicator, but it's, it's exciting to have great performers and to think that you're doing a good job because some people are doing really well, but really... That has a lot less to do with us than it does the individual, in my experience. So what would be the percentage of your team that was hitting quota that you would say, we have a healthy organization, we're hitting, we're, and it doesn't have to be a precise percentage, but a, a range yeah. where you say, this is what I'm looking for to indicate that we really have an elite organization. Yeah. And so much of that just depends on like, where did you set the quota? Philosophically, what did you believe was fair quota setting? And it's the conversation between finance and sales and exec. But in general, I think if you've got a healthy portion, if you've got, say, 50% of your middle performers, take out your top 10% and take out your bottom 10%. And then that middle call it 70 or 80, what's their attainment and repeatability and sort of month over month success? I think that's the indicator of of the success of your system. And so if most of those people are getting better every month, if there's a fairly consistent quota attainment, if you're setting fair quotas, that would be a pretty good place to, to measure. So on the Building Elite Sales Teams podcast, we often talk about talent and we're going to do that here again today. Can you tell us what are some of the basics that you think need to be in place to to build the talent portion of that pillar? Yeah, so I really like the framework from the book Who in terms of the front end of talent acquisition and then there's the onboarding and ongoing development. So on the front end in trying to get the right people in the team. So it, it comes from being able to source good talent, whether that's inbound or outbound being able to scorecard those individuals effectively so that you can then three, select the right people. And then four, can you secure those people? Can you get them to, to opt in? And so on the talent acquisition side, it's, it's those four things. And then once they have started at your company, then there's a couple phases. There is the There's phase one, how well can you onboard and get people to some sort of initial proficiency? And that's your onboarding, your onboarding experience, the enablement, the coaching that you're giving to those individuals, that plays a huge role. And whether or not you have 80% of new hires working out versus 50% of new hires working out has an incredible impact on the efficiency, the capital efficiency, and just like the overall growth of the business. And then on an ongoing basis, what are you doing to consistently coach and develop your team? How do they develop new skills? How quickly are they progressing? I think the velocity of improvement of at the individual level is the single biggest indicator whether or not you're going to have sustainable success because we know that markets change so much and, and the number only goes one way. It only goes up. So just to keep pace with the natural inertia of a startup and, and quotas going up sort of 15, 20, 50% year over year, how fast are you getting your teams ready to, to carry that load and, and beyond? Those would be the major facets of talent development. And then the last piece would be 
your career planning? Like how good is your internal career mapping? Do you have places for people to go? Do they have a clear idea of that? Because being able to keep people engaged and, and working hard is obviously critical. And that career map is really important. Lots of great information there. Since we don't have time to talk about all of it, I'm going to try to pick one thing and go down the, the rabbit hole on one of the things that you mentioned there. What's the reason cool. that scorecards are important to you? So it's all about consistency and being able to consistently hire the right people for the role and eliminate the mishires has a crazy impact because the delta between getting three out of four hires right and two out of four correct is has a massive compounding effect. And so I find that historically sales leaders hire with a lot of feel and they're teaching like a very open hiring process with not a lot of structure, but it's impossible to compare and give a fair evaluation to a number of candidates if your experiment is different every single time, if you have all sorts of variables changing. The order of the questions is different, the types of questions and what questions that you ask, the experience being being different every time. It's impossible to, to truly compare. In our hiring curriculum, it's broken down in the specific questions we want to ask in a first interview, the information we give them between interview one and interview two, how the case study is written, the order of the questions in the case study, the feedback we give them, like everything is predetermined in terms of a scripting perspective, but then they're all measured against a really specific scorecard because humans are bad at evaluating other humans. I think Daniel Kahneman makes this argument in a very compelling manner and thinking fast and slow. And so being able to force yourself to evaluate each individual component of a candidate gives you way more clarity as to how this person has performed. And I think especially in sales, the biggest challenge here is charisma colors all. And so by scorecarding, we get to separate like discrete elements, conscientiousness, preparation, curiosity, drive, like really specific things. Then it forces me to consider that element individually, as opposed to if you just think about this interaction holistically, like, okay, one to five, what did I think about this person? Somebody who's extremely charismatic and very well-spoken, ten, it tends to just like color your entire evaluation when really... Like charisma isn't, it's not unimportant in sales, but it's only maybe one factor out of 15 or 20, but without a proper structure and scorecarding, it tends to bleed into everything. The scorecarding makes you discreetly score each component, which helps for better decision-making. If there's a sales leader listening who's, hey, I'm at an early stage startup. I'm the single decision-maker for the hires that we make. I've done a pretty good job of hiring the right people in the past. I probably don't need a scorecard. It makes sense when my team gets bigger and there's multiple decision makers. But when I'm the decision maker, do I need a scorecard? What would you say to that person? Yeah, for sure. It, it might not need to be as comprehensive as what you're going to build when other people are executing your playbook. But this is to help you reduce your own cognitive bias and help you from making mistakes. It's so easy to get swept up in things that are immaterial in an interview process and have all of the cognitive biases affect us and, and lead us down the wrong path that having at least a bullet point scorecard that you're going off of written down so you, so you can reference it is just going to help you make better decisions. I've personally sat down and done a scorecard for somebody that I really liked or didn't like as much and then being like, oh, wow, 
I was probably going to go the wrong direction on this. And then you have one of those moments where you're reviewing a candidate and you're like, oh, they were really great. They were so compelling, yada, yada, yada. And then it's, they didn't really ask me like almost a single question. And they were like pretty well prepared, but not that well prepared. They don't have that top level of drive. And then you just look back, you're like, okay, I liked them, but that's a no. And it only takes that happening one time for you to really understand the, the power of the scorecard and to also understand the, the flaw in our judgment as hiring managers. Yeah, I've had that same experience in the candidate debrief where I've done one of the interviews, other people have done interviews, other interviews, and then I go in and have that conversation and realize, oh, I had a blind spot with this candidate. I was totally wrong about them. And that's happened to me. We did a really disciplined job about uh, at this at Shopify and we're, I'm, I haven't been as, as diligent at owner, but you saying it makes me go, oh, I got to bring back, I got to bring back the debrief because it is, it's such a clarifying process. You mentioned some of the traits that are commonly looked for among salespeople that you put on a scorecard. Can you tell us how, how do you structure your scorecard as a whole? Or- so the scorecard net needs to match the specific role. One of the things that who talks a lot about is being specific about the jobs to be done by this role and being really specific about it. And so the scorecard you build needs to match your market, the stage of the company, seed versus public makes a big difference, the type of customer, the type of sale that you run. So there's a framework I like to use that I've evolved depending on the roles I'm hiring for, but is is the rough structure is pretty consistent. So the scorecard has three components. One is mindset, two is skills, and then three is specific knowledge. And so in my current world, I'm hiring first to five-year sellers. We're SMB-oriented, high-velocity sale. So my top segments, I've got more experienced sellers, but for the most part, it's like quite transactional. And so in this environment, mindset is way more important than anything else. Because if you've only got two years of selling experience and those happen to be in places that like don't have great sales pedigree, then you, you just won't know how to do it properly. But those bad habits, they're not that deeply ingrained. But if you've got huge drive, you're super curious, you're a learning machine, you've got a lot of passion for what we're doing. If you've got that mindset category in abundance, that's where I'm betting all day. So at least 50% of my current scorecard is is mindset. And and it's even more than that for BDR, a little bit less than that for AE, because I've got more data to go off of. Then skills, I want to see, call it, so if it's 60% mindset, were 25% skill set and 15% specific knowledge. If you've worked in a restaurant, you're passionate about restaurants, the specific knowledge does matter for sure. I, I like it to be there, but I'm not optimizing for it. If I was hiring enterprise sellers and I was selling into engineering and dev teams, yeah, if, if you have no specific knowledge and you're trying to work a half a million dollar enterprise DevOps tool, you just don't have the credibility to walk into that room and think that you're going to learn fast enough to get deals done. So it has to flex depending on your environment. But under each of those categories, I've got a bunch of things. So I mentioned the mindset stuff, skills is all the sales acumen pieces. How's the, what's the business acumen? Do you have good communication written verbally? And again, that depends on what you do more of in your sales cycle. And then specific knowledge is, do you know the market? Do you, have you sold this type of uh, technology before? You mentioned on mindset, you've mentioned several different traits or competencies that fall under mindset. 
you've and you've been clear that it really the right ones depend on the specifics of the role and the specifics of the company and stuff like that. But are there a few that you tend to see consistently come up in sales roles that are almost always there? Yeah, 100%. So these basically never leave the scorecard no matter what role I'm hiring for. Under the mindset category, one is history of excellence. So when you do stuff, do you do it well? If I've got sales background, then you know I want to see there. But if there's less sales background to go off of, you're looking at academics, sports. It could be like you're an, the best tuba player in your band, in the like orchestra in your city. I don't care what it is, but did you do stuff at a really high level? Because it shows a commitment to learning, a desire to be really great. Clearly, you have to be coachable. So history of excellence is a big thing that I'm always trying to tease out. Coachability, for sure. A learner's mindset, so a, a consistent desire to learn and improve, and do you take that on to yourself? Are you growing outside of your role, reading, podcasts, courses, whatever it is? Resilience is always there. Drive, do you have that top-end drive to be great and, and to be a part of something great? Agility is a big thing. Uh, I want to see like an agility to, to roll with the punches. This is distinct from resilience, but I think an important one. Is it distinct from adaptability or would you say it's the same kind of adaptability is the same kind of concept as agility? Can you keep up with a pace of change? Yeah. For sure. Intelligence is one of the other ones. You just have like raw smarts that I can build around. And then the last one is EQ. And so under EQ, there's, are you self-aware? Can you manage yourself? Do you, do you have good relationship awareness? That's a big piece of it. And then there's also a character bucket in mindset that I'm also trying to tease out authenticity, integrity, accountability, some of those things that I put into this character bucket. You could argue those should be there. Those should be like different criteria, but that would overweight. I think those things in comparison to drive and resilience, that's why the EQ bucket has four things under it because they're triggers to think about. But as a line item, EQ is just worth one of those weights. Same with character. Yeah. One of the things I see oftentimes, and maybe you've seen this as well, is intelligence is really important, but I think sometimes it gets overweighted to like where where people don't look at, have they been able to successfully apply their intelligence? Because there's people who sure. are really smart, but not good at getting things done. And so you want to see people who can learn and apply quickly apply the things they've learned. Sometimes I see sales organizations, but also other types of organizations who just think, oh, this person's really smart. Let's hire them. And they really, yeah. and that's a good checkbox. They're really smart, but do they have being able to apply that and, and achieve that excellence that you talked about before? It's such a great point and goes back to the importance of scorecarding because sometimes you can just be wowed by somebody's raw intellect and then it colors, it's got the halo effect on everything else. But then you sit down and you're like, did it actually seem like they're a crazy hard worker? It seems like a lot of things came easily to them. And I didn't really get the sense that they were coachable. And so that's why holding that one criteria as just one out of the one out of the scores under this mindset category then balances the weighting that we're putting uh, on them. But very much agreed on your point there. Yeah. When, you, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of conducting interviews or doing assessments, what are some of your favorite techniques or tips or interview questions in order to tease out specific aspects, some of the specific aspects of mindset that you mentioned today. For sure. And in my hiring form in Lever, so the form that this, the hiring manager is filling out, 
the questions are all written in the exact order I want them asked in. And then there's even prompts for what is a good answer and what's like not a good answer. Like what are we looking for? And so the consistency of that experience is really important. So much so that I actually send as a video ahead of the interview, the about owner. So like in an interview, typically the first interview, typically you know, we ask some questions and then the hiring manager tells the candidate a bunch about the company and then the candidate asks some questions. And the about owner, about the company can be different each time, especially depending on how long your initial sets of questions have gone. And so I started doing this maybe six or nine months ago where I pre-recorded the entire about owner. So they get a lot more depth. They get a 25 minute video as opposed to a 10 minute spiel of me going as fast as I can in an interview where it's here's about the product, the problem we solve, the customer, where we're at as a company, and then how, how we're thinking about growing in sales. So they get that as a consistent part of the experience. And then when it comes to the questions to tease some of this stuff out, a lot of this is just trying to dig multiple levels deeper into the why behind everything. And so if you've read top grading, it really teaches you to just keep asking questions about like why and how and who was in that and what was their reaction. And if I asked them what your contribution was to that project, how would they frame it? And so that I think is a applicable approach here. And a lot of the times I'm just trying to get to like, where does your success come from? And what did you do different in terms of your approach and your approach to the deal and the approach to your career? And so a favorite question of mine is good to great. What do you think separates somebody who can do 100% of a quota pretty consistently, like a super solid performer, somebody you're glad to have on your team versus a top 5% president's club type individual? And I want to see how they think about what drives peak performance. And what I do earlier in the call is I when I'm asking them about their background and some of their results. And I'm like, oh, and what do you attribute your success to? Like, where do you think that's come from? And it's interesting to, to compare those two answers to one another, because oftentimes they're talking about good to great as like an outward looking thing that they've seen great people do, but they haven't actually done themselves yet because they're not there. So I think like their understanding of what drives greatness and how well does that greatness how well does that approach map to what they're actually doing themselves is important. That's a lot of the like drive and learning. I ask people, what are you getting better at right now? That's another really key question. So like outside of the job, like how are you sharpening your skills today? And you get, when you get vague answers, they're doing very little. Oh, I listen to gong calls. I specifically frame the question as outside of getting better on the job, how are you getting better? If the answer is gong calls, then I know they're not really taking their learning upon themselves. I want to hear it's, oh man, I'm a podcast junkie. I listen to this and this. And then I'm always asking the like multiple follow-ups. Oh, and so what was the last thing that you, what was the most, what was the most impactful thing you've read in the last six months? And what was your specific learning from that book? And how did you apply it? What's the most recent thing you read? What are your top, you mentioned podcasts, what are your top three favorite podcasts. Give me like, what's the, what's your favorite episode recently? Cause what I'm trying to get to is like the truth and the top grading teaches you that it's just the people won't be able to get into that level of depth. <laughs> I had a guy who was like, Oh, it must've heard me like talking about this somewhere else. He was like really pumping up how much he reads in this stuff. And he was talking about a book. I'm like, great. Like I read that book not too long ago. What was your favorite takeaway? And then I had a question about it and he's, Oh yeah, it's, and then he just exits the meeting and then comes back on 
And clearly he's like, oh, sorry, internet connection. It's raining here. And then I re-ask the question. And then you can see he's re- trying to read a summary and a- answer the question as I'm going, butchering the answer. But like, that's what I'm trying to get. That's what I'm trying to get at with sort of that top grading, like multiple levels answer. So the to loop back to your question, how what am I asking about those specific attributes? I've got specific questions for most attributes on the scorecard, but then I'm trying to dig one or two levels deeper to stress test their answers on it. One of the things I talk about a lot is what happens in a lot of companies is that someone will be told, hey, we want you to take care of these two issues. We want you to do, let's say, agility and and drive. And someone yeah. will go on the internet and they'll find some questions on agility and drive and they'll end up, they'll, they're interviewing the candidate and they have 10 questions to ask the candidate. And the candidate only has to answer each question for three to five minutes. And in three to five minutes, you yeah. don't really know whether they've actually done this before or if they've just read about it on the internet. And so one of the things that yeah. I think that you're getting at that can make interviews a lot more effective is that you have fewer questions and lots of potential follow-ups to each question. Yeah. And there's even stuff in the case study where I'm trying to build in ways for them to perform the things. Like the behavioral questions only get you so far. I really want to see them perform. So if coachability is important to you, then in our interview process, we have a component where we give them feedback and we see how they react to it. And then we ask them a question that highly coachable people go back to the feedback that we gave them earlier. But essentially, like we give them the feedback and then I ask a couple questions to create some space between like me giving the feedback and then I'm asking. And then later in the process, I ask them. And so if you were to do this again, what would you do differently? If you do this exercise again, some people like, oh, I'd probably practice more or I don't know, like I feel like I did really well. Okay, I just gave you a bunch of feedback five minutes earlier. You'd hope that people go back to that or have the self-awareness to have like specific things. And I'm trying to find demonstrations of those traits as much as I find answers. And then if you're hiring managers, you really want to like see if you can get to the experience of a rep. And so if I'm hiring managers and the thing that I'm testing for is servant leadership and how much do you invest in your people, I'll just ask them, hey, do you mind if I reach out cold to a few people that have reported to you in the past? I don't ask for references. I'm like, can I just reach out cold and get their feedback on these things? And some people squirm and that's a sign. But other times they're like, yeah, for sure. Anybody that you want. And and I'll go and ping a couple folks and get the real unvarnished feedback. So you're trying to you're trying to collect like data points of all sorts to validate answers, which are always skewed in some way. So we've heard some great advice from you about the importance of scores, how you use scorecards, how you gather the data to be able to give those scores. What should sales leaders watch out for when implementing this? And what are some of the common mistakes? Yeah, context is king, for sure. Your business is going to be unique in a number of different ways like the stage of the company the resourcing and the the resourcing at a later stage company versus the chaos and rapid pace of change at a much younger company mean you different need a very different profile of rep potentially and how much is mindset versus skill versus can change by the fact your SME versus mid-market versus enterprise. And so you got to take the scorecard and really be specific about and very thoughtful about what you put on your scorecard and how you weight it. And ultimately, scorecards are flawed. We're trying to represent somebody's 
being and performance as an individual and like all of these complexities as complex as people are in like a 10 score criteria. So you are going to be wrong and they are going to they are flawed by nature scorecards, but it's not the, it's not the score that is really the most important thing. It's the fact that you've gone through the process and you've been forced to think systematically and rigorously about that person. It's like with ChatGPT or any of these Gen AI tools, if you ask them a question and then you ask them the same question, you tell it, think logically, think step by step. The output is very different. And it was interesting, like when I saw that, I'm like, oh, that one of the first things I thought is that's why I like to get people to do monthly plans or quarterly planning, even if it's not crazy important or scorecarding, even if it's not like that plan is going to be obsolete that the, by the, when you write it or that score is going to be sub, that score is going to be like an imperfect representation of the individual. But going through the process of measuring pe- people criteria by criteria will force the mental clarity and help your decision making. One of the things that I talk about a lot is that the best hiring decisions are human decisions. And you have different pieces mm-hmm. of data, including the output of the scorecard that's that is a very important piece of data, but you have to triangulate that with the references and with a bunch of other stuff. And I think that if sometimes people will try to put like way too many items on the scorecard, like the items or what, or they'll get really concerned about the weights on the scorecard. And I think that a lot of that stuff is like driving towards a sense of precision that's really a mm-hmm. full sense of precision. And you can't just hire people based on the final grade. That is one of the important pieces of data, but it's not the only thing that you make use in a hiring decision. That triangulation is massively important. The other piece of advice I would give to folks is when it feels off, just say no. When you want, you got a seat to fill, this person looks great on paper, there's like a bunch of the right signals. If it just doesn't totally feel right, you're way better to say no. Like it all, that always goes, that always goes badly. So just leave the seat unfilled as painful as that is. I'll also give like one plug for Yardstick just before we wrap, because I think what caught my eye when we were chatting at the, in Napa was something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And we were about to do at Shopify, but I, I ended up leaving was being able to take all of these scorecards and then do a, a regression analysis and compare it to performance because scorecards are imperfect as we've been talking about, but you can start to understand what in your scorecard is highly correlated to success in reality because these this scorecard is just like an artificial construct that I've built based on all of the patterns that I've seen, but it's going to be very wrong. And so I think the thing that it was most compelling about Yardstick was being able to have this data there, be able to compare this to future performance and continually fine tune what we are giving the most weight to. So I think that's the other really great reason to scorecard and the feedback is trust the data and revisit. Like we revisited a bunch of our BDR hiring interviews. Like we looked at the interviews and looked at, okay, like what did I think about this person six months ago? And what do I think about them now? And what should I have caught? Because that feedback mechanism doesn't need to go into an official data informed regression analysis weighting, but just the process of looking at this is what I thought, this is what was true versus not is another great way to calibrate. And so the fact that your tool helps that is, I think, a really or an exciting thing that I haven't seen in the market before. And I think is an important thing for people to consider. Kyle, thanks for saying that. And and thanks for spending this time with us today and sharing all this great information. We really appreciate having you on Building Elite Sales Teams.
Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.